Hello and welcome. This podcast has been a long time in the making and I'd like to thank Daniel for being so patient with me. Daniel is a mental health practitioner who I spoke with towards the end of a long COVID summer. And as we're now coming out of yet another long COVID winter, I thought it important to go back to my conversation with Daniel to help give some perspective to how we are now. As practitioners, we reflect continuously, but sometimes having time and space to do this is difficult. The last two years can seem a blur of emotions, yet revisiting this conversation made me realise how important perspective can be. So Daniel, what brought you to social work? What brought me to social work was a desire, I think, to, to, to make more of a difference to people's lives, having spent about eight years working in support work in various settings, learning disability, mental health, in children's homes as an agency support worker as well. And in addition, I've grown up around social workers. My uncle and auntie are respectively a retired improved mental health professional and a retired hospital social worker. So those two work and family experiences and influences kind of made me think I want to go into social work. So I did that. I completed my training in 2016, moved from Bristol to Plymouth to do it. And I've been in practice now for coming up to four years. And what's your role? Where do you work? So I work in the community mental health team, North and West, and the community recovery and forensic team as a community mental health practitioner and social worker. And you say you did a lot of support work before. What would you say the main difference is between support work and social work? I'd say the main difference is the absence of practical support and and really the amount of time that we as social workers get to spend with clients tends to be significantly less. Whereas as a support worker, you you can work with the same person for, you know, up to eight, maybe 12 hours at a time, you know, depending on the, on the length of your shift. But typically, in my role anyway, in these times during the pandemic, it's mainly telephone triage work, brief face-to-face visits to complete financial capacity assessments with people and joint visits supporting colleagues because of particular risk. Nowadays, in times of a pandemic, there's so much more pressure on people. Have you seen a rise in your caseload or in the referrals coming through? Working across both teams, I don't currently hold a caseload. Okay. But I'd say across both teams, we have noticed a rise in transfers across teams. Okay. Yeah, there, there, there appears to be a, a rise in, in people being referred by GP to slowly the, the, the community mental health team. So I think what that indicates is, is that people are still struggling with the, with, with the long-term effects of coronavirus, mm-hmm. you know, not, not only on the, on the mental health, but I, I would imagine also on, on the financial well-being. And on, on human relationships, I mean, I think reflecting on a, on a, on a particular case and an assessment joint assessment that I did with a psychiatrist colleague of mine, it strikes me that some people, particularly you know, a middle-aged man that I, that I can think of, 
who just seemed to be suffering with not only coronavirus-based anxiety, but also accumulation of several losses in his life. And, you know, I, I can imagine that several people, several service users have gone through similar losses within the past year. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't have the usual support networks around us to go through that. No. You know, everything has changed, even from the usual support that you'd have to the support you'd have through a funeral or, you know, anything like that. It's it's just completely changed. Mm -hmm. And I think for a long time, there was no clear path as to how people can be supported. So last year, both COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement have changed the way that we as social workers work. And it's also challenged our thinking. Has your role changed in light of COVID and Black Lives Matter? Or the work that you do or the way in which you do it? Yeah, I'd say I'd say it has. I mean, my, my social work outside of my day job, if you like, has has been changed by the advent of, of Black Lives Matter because I, I responded to it to a call from the British Association of Social Workers, an advert by them to submit the creative pieces to celebrate the 50 years that Lanswer has been in existence mm-hmm. in an ebook project. So the call was for essays, poems, videos, podcasts to be included into a, an ebook. So I decided to, to have a go at, at writing a poem. Okay. And I was reading a lot of news stories and also academic literature on the impact of Black Lives Matter at the time. And yeah, decided to put that into a 50-line blitz poem okay. called Floyd Rebuild, which basically conveys my, my, my thoughts about the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the impact that that's had on the world and on, on social work amidst the, the pandemic as well. And that's been picked up for inclusion in, into the ebook. And if we wanted to listen to that, how could we listen to that? We could listen to that by purchasing the book, I believe, which is still in publication, but it will be, it will be published, I would imagine, sometime this year through the British Association of Social Workers. So one could listen to it and read it through there because I, I produced not only a written word version, but also a spoken word. Mm-hmm. We've also got plans, just very much de- developmental plans at the moment to, to create a, a short film to celebrate the creation of the project. What that looks like at the moment, I don't know, but I, I would imagine it would be a retrospective kind of film project on the project and and the themes that come out of it like Black Lives Matters and my thoughts and other participants thoughts from the book. That's just really brilliant I'm really I didn't know about the book so I'm going to look that up interesting to read it mm. and to look at it sounds like a really good project. Yeah 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 really really exciting and yeah I'd be interested to read all the other submissions from from other other social workers that have decided to submit something to the project. Absolutely. And in terms of the work that you do, have new issues arisen in light of COVID? Or have you felt that your work was ethically impacted? Yeah, I, I, I feel it's been ethically impacted by the absence of 
face-to-face visits because we've we've had to adapt the way we practice to include virtual home visits. And just on Friday, I was reading some research that has come out. It's come out from Manchester University, I believe, on what makes a good home visit. And what struck me was that ethically, the research recommended that it's almost about you know allowing the client when you do these virtual home visits with them to see a little bit of your own private life when you do a, a home visit. So the research, for example, re- recommended that you know you, you have a a cup of tea in in, in view when when you're on mm-hmm. camera with a a client and you have you have pens maybe I don't know a, a plate of biscuits if you like to have a, a cup of tea and a biscuit <laughs> just to sort of create that sense of comfort and normalcy I suppose that's actually really interesting because I hadn't really considered the minutiae of what a video call home visit looks like so. A lot of social workers that I've spoken to, for example, do those backgrounds, you know, the team's backgrounds. Yeah. And they look great. They look fun. You've got the beach behind you or whatever. But I didn't actually think that it's also a way to hide who you are. And if you're hiding who you are, i.e. hiding your background, hiding a wall of your living room, if you're hiding who you are, then that trust relationship is harder to get started, I suppose. It's like the anecdote I was telling you about the politician and his cat mm-hmm. walking across the screen before we, we, we started this interview. You know, if, if that happened in a video call assessment with, with, with a client, that just shows a, a, a little bit of a little bit of humour, a little bit of spontaneity, a little bit of a, a real life, I suppose. I think it's about being real rather than conveying this image of a detached professional. It's about... I think, striking a balance between being professional and human at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And because we're not face-to-face with somebody, you have to find other ways to bring that person, to bring you as a person to the person in front of the screen. So doing things like putting the beach background on, you're almost hiding behind that. And therefore having a cup of tea and they have a cup of tea or you're having a cup of tea together, you know, you're sharing something really, aren't you? There's something that you're sharing and then it's therefore easier to share maybe the rest of the difficulties or something that's going on. Absolutely. You know, I can think of several visits pre-pandemic where I've met with clients both in the community and in their own homes where we have done literally that, Michelle. We've shared a cup of tea or a cup of coffee Mm -hmm. and then we've talked about the problems that the client might be experiencing or the difficulties in a more everyday, normal kind of setting. And, you know, making sure those simple things like having a cup of tea in in view or, you know, some pens or a jotter of paper in in view of the camera helps to recreate that face-to-face normality. Yeah, I like that. I think when I do my video calls, I'm going to ask them if they want a cup of tea Mm. and then go get myself one at the same time absolutely yeah I think actually thinking about it I mean we're we're now what a year into the pandemic looking back at the work that I do I don't think I ever do that I think I pretty much go straight into 
you know, the assessment or the talk or the discussion about the difficulties and what that person is doing well and how the person is coping, et cetera, et cetera, without actually thinking, as I would if it was a face-to-face assessment, without actually thinking, you know what, should we take a break? And do you want a cup of tea? I'm going to get a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea? Why don't you go and get a cup of tea? I don't actually think I've done that. Mm. So I'm going to have a look at that Manchester research. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. What have you found most challenging about working over the past year? I think what I found most challenging about working over the past year was the amount of time spent full-time homeworking. I was was full-time homeworking for six to eight months. Mm. And by by the time I went back to the office in a hybrid working model, I felt I was burnt out with homeworking because I... I realised I, I really needed that spontaneity and, and office banter and just the five-minute conversations that you have with colleagues as you're passing them in a socially distant way down the corridor. And it felt really good going back into the office when we first went back because it was challenging. It was stressful. It was relentless working from home because there was that absence of face-to-face human connection and interaction with your colleagues and also clients alongside the sheer volume of, of, of the work. I don't think anyone could have predicted the, the amount of work that we all had to do. You know, there was a huge demand on not only mental health services, but, you know, across, across the board, I think, across all social services because of the multifarious impacts that the pandemic has had on people's lives. It was such an uncertain and and challenging and and worrying time for, for everyone. I feel like those challenges have changed now, really. I mean, the, the, the challenge is slightly different. I think the focus is on continuing to make sure people in the community are, are, are safe and well. And that includes us as professionals. Yeah. And the focus really is on getting as many people vaccinated as we can as we drive towards, hopefully, you know, herd immunity and, and people being vaccinated to a point where we can return to somewhat what life looked like pre-pandemic. I don't think we will be able to go back to how life was completely. Would you want to? I don't think I would. I don't think I would because I think in many ways the world has adapted. It's adapted to the pandemic. One of the ways we've done in social care and social work is through the use of of technology, really. It's become a useful tool. Okay, it could work better. But it's become a useful tool in, in, in doing our work, I think, and has become a, a resource in our toolbox. And it's something you'd like to continue, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to continue it. How do you think the people that you work for, so, and you know, you don't hold a caseload, but how have they coped with all the changes? If I think about the... The, the clients that I work with in the community forensic team, I mean, their their lives are, are really quite different because a lot of them have been 
in secure hospital settings for several years, some of whom have been in these settings for, for maybe a third of their lives. So I think that they've coped with it remarkably well. And from what I've, I've read and heard about their feedback is that they almost don't want to leave the hospital because that's what they know and that's where they feel safe. And to be discharged from hospital, but back into the community, particularly in a, a world, a society that's, that's gone through seismic changes really over, over the past year or so, would be a very frightening thing to do. So a lot of our work going forward is about helping those people to adapt and, and to prepare them really psychologically, emotionally, practically to make that transition. It's interesting because it's almost, I mean, for, for so many years, we've been working at de-institutionalizing people. But I think with a pandemic, the world outside is just so much scarier. And it's gone on for so long that you're almost going back to that institutionalization so that the work that you do has to involve a little bit more integration, doesn't it? Mm. I guess it would be slower. It would be slower. There's more patients involved. There's more therapy work involved, ensuring that people are, feel comfortable and safe for themselves, but also for their health. Mm. And of course, once they leave hospital, I suppose they're also much more isolated, at least in a hospital setting. They've got a bubble around them. And once they leave, that bubble is no longer there. Mm. So the isolation would be a lot stronger. Absolutely. And I think that's where we will, certainly with that cohort of service user, we'll see the need for more and more bespoke packages of care. Yes. Because one of the, the, the main needs that, that, that people will have will be to have that feeling of safety and connection replicated in the community. So there'll be a need for services and support workers, carers to be able to provide that. Which again could be a really beneficial after effect of the pandemic mm. because it could mean that we have aftercare far more tailored and far more psychologically tailored than perhaps what was happening before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would like to see that change. And can you think of a case that has particularly stood out for you in the last sort of eight, nine months that's either challenged your thinking processes or just a, a case that's really made you think about how things have been? Mm. Yeah, I can. A gentleman who's middle-aged, lives on his own, has a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, significant risks of harm to women, and he will frequently leave his, his city of residence and travel on the bus to different parts of the country and then present to hospital seeking admission. So that particular case has challenged me and the, the community recovery and forensic team in many ways, really, because the case forced us to 
to think really differently about what the person needed. And what we decided was that we needed to explore a referral to the high intensity project for this person who, with the aim of creating a care plan so that any health or social care service or emergency service, for that matter, that came into contact with, with this person could see that, that care plan and follow its recommendations in providing care and support to the person. Okay. And this was an intervention that I'd never done before. Neither had my colleague, the, the gentleman's care coordinator. It really got us thinking creatively about how best to support him. Mm-hmm. But that included working closely as a team, but then also working collaboratively with the high intensity project as well to you know manage the risks and encourage you know interagency working and consistent interagency working with this person and that works still ongoing because a lot of our work over the past year or so has just taken a lot of time and that's the case with this project so i think that's one of the many examples of cases that have challenged me but also provided you know rich learning opportunities really yeah absolutely and I think sometimes when we're in a position where we can't do our normal work for whatever reason it does give you that opportunity doesn't it to think about how else an individual can be supported or whether or not we're the right person to be supporting that individual and is there another organization that can do it better Mm. and you know work in a different way work in a different way yes in many situations and many questions that, that, that I've asked of my own practice and, and also that of colleagues have encouraged me to work differently. And I think that's, that's one of the great strengths that we as social workers bring to practice is that ability and that desire to, to, to work differently to perhaps our other multidisciplinary colleagues. And one of the things that, that I've particularly noticed since since changing teams is the value of the social work profession among other colleagues, particularly in the two teams that I work across. Mm-hmm. Because in teams that I've worked in previously, unfortunately, I haven't felt that from what I've heard from previous feedback that the work has been valued. I've heard that said, but haven't felt it. And it's interesting that I feel that way in the two teams that I work across now. And what's that about? I think that's about the interpersonal dynamics within the team. But then also, I think it comes from the impact of certain management styles on how teams operate. And yeah, I think just to sum up the whole pandemic and past year, 18 months have been really challenging for the social work profession and our practitioners that work in it. But we've seen, we've seen a lot of movement. You know, we're on a podcast called Social Work Moves, and that's exactly what social work does. It moves and changes hourly, daily, yearly. I'm reminded of a quote from a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, I think, who said that there's one constant in life, and that's change. <laughs> that could almost be a motto for social work, though, can't it? Because I think it, it's sort of trained into us. We're trained to be social, and we're trained to 
change. If something's not working, let's try something else. That's not working, let's try something else. Mm -hmm. This is our first pandemic. Let's hope we don't have another one. But it has made change daily, hourly. You know, you're constantly trying something new to work within the changing guidelines, the changing medical status, the changing mental health status of an individual. You're constantly trying something new. And actually, that's something I love about social work, that we have that desire for change. Mm. We don't want things to be the same and just do this assessment and that assessment and sort of go through the process. I mean, I think in general, we like the change aspect of it. Yeah, I agree. I love change. You know, I'm, I'm very much of the belief that, that change is good. Sometimes changes might not feel so good, but once we have perspective on particular changes in, in, in life, you know, we, we, can, we can reflect and we can see that, yeah, okay, that we may have perceived the changes in, in our lives as bad or, or not so good at the time. And also the, the pandemic, like, like you say, Michelle, has, has encouraged us to adapt and to pivot and to constantly try new and different things and move at, at, a, at a rate of change that perhaps we haven't needed to in the past within the profession. The paces of change, I feel, has definitely yeah. accelerated over the past 12 months or so. And I think what would be really interesting is seeing where we are in 12 months. You know, 12, 15 months, how are we going to view this period? It's almost too soon, really, isn't it? It's really too soon to right now to be, I mean, we're still in it, hopefully at the end of it, but it's too soon to give it a reflective stance. And where will we be in 12 months, 15 months, 18 months? How will we view it? That's actually a really interesting thought. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Daniel, I've got some quick fire questions for you. What would you tell a friend who wanted to be a social worker? I would tell my friend to go for it. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. If you want to change people's lives and also change your own, do social work. And if you were Prime Minister for a day, you had the power to change one thing about social work, what would it be? I'd give us all a pay rise because I think we missed out on that. Yay, I'm agreeing with that one. <laughs> Powers that be can listen. And if you were not a social worker, what would you be? If I were not a social worker, I would be a filmmaker making films about positive social change. You've made a film already, haven't you? I have, yeah. Tell me about your film. So two that come to mind. One was with the mental health charity Mind about how mental health and physical health go hand in hand. Anyone that's interested in watching it can do so on the Mind YouTube channel. If you search mental health and physical health go hand in hand, it will come up. And the other short film I've made is a short film called 16. This was made over 10 years ago now with North Somerset County Council Youth Service. And it explores several issues related to social work, such as domestic abuse, bullying, domestic violence, self-harm and knife crime. That film went to Cannes Film Festival back in the day. So I'm uh, particularly proud of that one. 
As you should be. And if we wanted to find that one, how would we find it? You would find it by searching 1616, a short film by Daniel Wilding and Darren Cliff. And when you see the production company, Productions, and a picture of a young lad in a beanie and a school uniform, that's the film you want to watch. All right. I will do that straight after this podcast. Daniel, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And hopefully I will speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.